Welcome to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Garima, and today we have a distinguished guest on our podcast who is at the forefront of a crucial conversation shaping the future of biobanking. Our guest today is none other than Zizis Kozlakatis, a prominent expert in the field of biobanking. And with him today, we'll be discussing the exciting intersection of environmental responsibility and science. But before we get started, before we get started uh, on our discussion about uh, decarbonization in biobanking, let me give you a quick overview of his remarkable background. Dr. Kozlakatis is a virologist and an expert in biobanking. He is the head of laboratory services and biobanking at the International Agency for Research on Cancer at the World Health Organization. He is responsible for one of the largest and most varied international collections of clinical samples in the world, focusing on gene environment interactions and disease-based collections. The WHO infrastructure supports multinational efforts in making treatments possible and delivering these resources to resource-restricted settings. Dr. Kozlakidis has a PhD in microbiology from Imperial College London. He is an elected fellow of the Linnean Society of London, the Royal Academy, and a Turnberg Fellow of the UK Academy of Medical Sciences. Additionally, he is the Editor-in-Chief of the Scientific Journal Innovations in Digital Health, Diagnostics and Biomarkers. He served in the past as President of the International Society of Biological and Environmental Repositories and as the Chair of the Center of Excellence for Infectious Diseases for the Biobanking and Biomolecular Resources Research Infrastructure, European Research Infrastructure Consortium. He holds an executive MBA from CAS Business School and is the co-founder of the City Healthcare Innovation Network. He also holds visiting faculty positions in China and the UK. So buckle up for an insightful session today. Without further ado, let's welcome Zizis Kostakadis on the podcast. Hi, Zizis. Hello, hello. Thank you very much for your kind words. I'm really humbled by the presentation. We are over the moon to have you, uh, Zizis. So uh, let's kick things off by uh, discussing traditional biobanking. Zizis, traditional biobanking is not uh, without its environmental challenges. So uh, could you shed some light on the challenges associated with environmental, uh, with the traditional biobanking and also perhaps present some solutions? Uh, or yes. uh, or uh, just yes. elaborate? Yeah, 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 yeah. Please go ahead. No, no. Um, so traditional biobanking, uh, well, let's say biobanking, so the preservation of uh, biological material such as blood or tissue together with associated data under some governance framework has been happening for a long time. So to give you an example, in the US, the first extensive biobanking collection started during the time of the Civil War, and that was in the 1860s. And uh, something similar was happening all across Europe at the end of the 19th century with collections in museums or royal societies and so on. But the modern biobanking as we know it today really took shape on the back of some very big global initiatives such as the Human Genome Project, the, the Cancer Genome Atlas and others. So the traditional biobanking that we know today is really still relatively young. It's only about 20 years old, 25 let's say, since high-throughput molecular technologies have taken um, hold of the center field of scientific research and required by the very nature 
high throughputs uh, of high quality samples. So that's where biobanking came in to provide these samples in large numbers and assured quality together with the data that goes, uh, that's associated. Now, because of the way this, bio, this biobanking practice has developed, which means associated with different big projects and continuing to be associated with uh, initiatives and research um, endeavors, it has meant that biobanking as a, as a standalone field has not really considered the, the environmental challenges that are posed uh, in our modern world. The, these challenges have been considered with biobanking as part of the research project or as part of the global initiative, but not for biobanking independently. And I think that is something that we can change uh, in, in our outlook from now onwards to actually look at biobanking as a field of activity in its own right and then see where the environmental challenges are, where the concerns are, and address those. For example, because you asked for some examples, uh, Karim, uh, one primary concern when it comes to biobanking is the really the energy-intensive nature of the ultra-low temperature freezers. So these are freezers, not like your domestic freezer that is at uh, minus 20 degrees at the lowest, 20 degrees centigrade, but they would go as far down as minus 40 or minus 80 degrees centigrade. And these are the bulk of ultra-low freezers in most biobanks across the world. Yet we use them as a, as a standard of practice and the information and the environmental uh, challenge that use poses doesn't really exist. Um, the other uh, concern, environmentally speaking, is the manufacturing and disposal of single-use plastic consumables. This is not uh, something that's particular to biobanking. This is throughout the medical research, and we understand why we use the, the single-use material, because we can just discard it and sterilize it and throw it away in a way that is safe for the handling. But at the same time, we do increase our environmental footprint. There is no, no doubt about it. So it's about reaching the balance between how do we maintain the safety, yes, keep it as safe as possible, uh, but also improve the footprint for our activities. Um, just just to close in on it, um, the main premise of a biobank is not that it acts as a storage. Uh, we have... Uh, two types of activity, if you like, in the biobanking field. One are what we would call biorepositories, so places where there is long-term storage, like the Svalbard seed vault in uh, Norway, where collections of seeds from all across the world are kept for a long time. And then we have biobanks that, uh, because of the word banking, 
they, they're supposed to be a lot more transactional in their outlook. So material would come in and out at regular intervals, much like you would do for a for a bank in everyday life. So when you talk about biobanks, then transportation of material is another key factor because the biological samples that you collect are supposed to come in and out at regular intervals, depending on the project, depending on the type of activity that you're engaged in. And again, I don't think we have a very good idea on the carbon footprint that that logistic side of the biobanks is posing on us. Right, right. Thank you, Zizis, for that response. Thank you for uh, elaborating on the environmental challenges inherent in traditional biobanking. Uh, all the aspects that you covered, I think, uh, underscore the need for a critical examination of uh, the environmental impact of uh, biobanking. Which brings me to your next, to my next question that I'd like your perspective on. Now, uh, this is uh, given the uh, global impact of biobanking. Uh, how important do you think it is for uh, the the biobanking community to engage in a dialogue about environmental sustainability in biobanking and incorporate uh, sustainability measures into its governance practices? Mm -hmm. um well, how important? I think it is very important, but then it's a biased answer. <laughs> but uh, um, no, if if we look at it objectively, there, there is no such dialogue at the moment. There are very few, say, for example, roundtable discussions that are hosted at the annual ISPA meeting. ISPA is the International Society for Biological and Environmental Repositories. So we have a couple of roundtable discussions. Uh, we've had a, a major publication on the subject uh, that was published last year. But these are very, very uh, indicative first steps that there is an interest in the community, but it's not a consolidated interest. It's not, let's say, uh, a, a dialogue that has been entrenched in our activities, even even not everyday activities, but say by monthly or uh, annual activities. So there is space for growth, there is space for further considering the impact of biobanking, local and global, and continuing this um, dialogue. From my perspective, it's really important because biobanking operations are energy-intensive processes. Uh, like we said before, from long-distance transportation, long-term storage, uh, the use of resource-intensive uh, disposable material, all this is energy-intensive. So we, we need to have a dialogue. At the same time, the, the dialogue that we need to have cannot be based on radical solutions, I don't think. Biobanking is a field of sustained growth, of long-term outlook. So you cannot start a biobanking project for three years. It's, it's really, it really doesn't make sense. Most biobanks would have an outlook of, uh, at a minimum, 10 years, 15 years, even longer, until the material is fully investigated. So we cannot go into the biobanking field and say, oh no, now you need to stop doing X and do Y. 
it has to come at a slow pace and that's why a dialogue is really important it has to provide the evidence bring the people along to the change of practice that's required to improve our environmental footprint um, at the same time, like in every other field where environmental measures have been taken, um, sustainability comes into play as a key question. And there are some very good examples of work on sustainability within the biobanking field. I don't know if we're allowed to name names, but uh, I would say um, work by Daniel Simeon Dubach is key in that field. Um, with uh, Marianne Henderson as well. So the sustainability has been well investigated and continues to be well investigated, but not in terms of the environmental impact. So we need to put that uh, perspective into the mix. So how do we make our operations more environmentally friendly while maintaining the sustainability or even improving the sustainability of biobanks? Right. Thank you so much for that response, Isis. Now, uh, let's talk about biobanking in low and lower and middle-income countries. Isis, we understand that uh, minimizing the impact of biobanking on environment uh, in lower and middle-income countries comes with its own unique challenges. Mm -hmm. Could you shine a spotlight on uh, the kind of challenges that biobanks in these countries face and also perhaps talk about some possible solutions, potential solutions and strategies that biobanks in these countries can adopt? Yes, and um, the low-middle-income countries are a key focus point for a lot of the World Health Organization activities. So from our part, we put a lot of effort to understand the differences in practice, the differences in context that lead to differences in practice uh, in low-middle-income countries. To be specific in biobanking, IARC, so the agency within the WHO where I work in, mm -hmm. created 10 years ago uh, the Biobank and Population Cohort Building Network, BCNet, with the aim of bringing a focal point of low and middle income countries, biobanks and institutional facilities, so we can talk about the issues that are specific to these settings, because we know that low middle income countries are underrepresented in the global research we know that low middle income countries are at a disadvantage when it comes to furnishing their laboratories their research activities that's that's a given but how do we actually use the context or use the unique opportunities that exist to address some of these challenges and it's the same for biobanking we need to come together and see what solutions have been developed in other places and how can we use that as a blueprint to adapt and uh, diffuse in other settings. So you asked about challenges specifically, and that, that was a rather long introduction to the challenge. But uh, the, main, the main challenge is the limited resources. Um, it's not just a limited financial resource, this, this of course is a given, but it's um, the ongoing limited resource financing. So even if biobanks get um, 
uh, a grant or a donation or contribution by a particular state to create a biobank, that is an upfront investment that still needs to be maintained by regular maintenance. And that is a pressure point for a lot of low middle income countries, either because that money for the maintenance is not guaranteed in the long term because of competing priorities, or because the availability of trained staff to do the maintenance in the long term is not there. It, there isn't a network of technicians that is able to service the highly specialized equipment. So this makes, this can have an impact on the infrastructure, it can make it inadequate, of course, it can impact the environmental footprint because instead of maintaining some equipment, that equipment breaks, you have to buy new ones. So you you, you see you uh, increase your environmental footprint in involuntarily. The other item is the lack of reliable electrical supply. So the availability of electricity has been a major infrastructural pain point for low-middle-income countries for a long time. And the more hospitals and hospital laboratories and university universities have been furnished with equipment, especially sensitive equipment for research, the more acute this problem becomes. One of the ways of addressing this problem of reliable electricity has been to provide on-site generators uh, that are typically petrol consumed, and it means that in order to maintain the consistency and the quality of the sample processing, you increase your environmental footprint because every now and then you have to consume petrol on top of your electricity consumption. Um, there are some solutions, so and I am aware of uh, biobanks that have opted for a mix of renewable resources such as solar power and petrol to cover for the lack of uh, stable electricity, but again, not without uh, issues. So some of the solar power solutions, the battery is not, uh, the lifespan of the battery is not uh, the desirable one. So again, if you need to change batteries every three or four years, you still create an environmental footprint that is actually uh, not as desirable as, as you would originally have thought. The other is the access to the sustainable technologies. So, the, it, it's one of the ideas that we have and we try to promote this co-development of technologies that are suitable for the LMIC context. So it's not just a simple importation of a technology. You buy it off the shelf in Canada, for example, and you bring it over to Uganda, and these are just random countries that I've uh, mentioned. But um, you allow the co-development of the basic core of the idea to take place locally and adapt to the, to the needs that are local. So, what are the, the solutions? Okay, of course, the optimal use of the existing storage equipment. Of course, the optimal use of the capacity of the storage equipment. 
um, the phasing out of uh, uh, CFCs and uh, HCFCs, I mean, this has been ongoing, but if we can accelerate it in some way, that, that would be even better. I, I am aware that um, in many places, the, the phasing out uh, of uh, CFCs um, hasn't happened at the rate that one has expected, and that was because perhaps incentives were not there, or the incentives that were there were not in sufficient numbers to allow for that acceleration to, to really happen. But uh, that is critical from an environmental perspective. The other is to optimize transportation costs. So, uh, how this happens, it really is driven by the local uh, by the local context. For example, you can have a big hospital with a big lab, laboratory, and a big biobank that receives samples from primary healthcare centers. Perhaps that can be optimized to be one or two deliveries per day from each hospital center or a bike that goes around the hospital centers and then collects everything and takes to the, you know, th these are local solutions that need to be thought of. Right, right. Thank you so much, uh, Zizis, for highlighting the distinct challenges uh, that biobanks in lower and middle income countries face uh, and for also highlighting some solutions. Uh, now, Zizis, uh, all the aspects that you covered or it's clear uh, from all the aspects that you covered, it's clear that a, a resource conscious and tailored approach is required to navigate the unique circumstances in these regions. Jesus, you talked about some behavioral and operational approaches uh, that biobanks in these countries can adopt. Now, uh, what about the role of governments, policymakers, and uh, perhaps uh, the larger biobanking community or the larger scientific community uh, to perhaps prioritize uh, the efforts in decarbonization. What do you think, what role do you think uh, these entities can play in um, overcoming the challenges that you outlined? Um, Karima, thank you for the question. And uh, actually, this is a very, very useful question to have. Okay. Very frequently in biobanking, we get so um, enhanced, so, so uh, entrenched, let's say, with the, with the everyday operational aspects that we forget of the bigger picture. So I, I think, yeah, that's, that's very critical to consider. Um, biobanking operations do not happen uh, all in by themselves. Mm -hmm. what, they, what, what I mean by this, is you have to have a stakeholder that provides the samples and you have to have a stakeholder that requires the samples at the minimum for a biobank to exist and probably an overseeing authority as well. Mm -hmm. So just by having a biobank, you have to interact with three key stakeholders that are probably one of them a policymaker and the other belong to the broad scientific community. So what what needs to happen is that we really need to maintain this very active uh, discussion with governments, with policymakers, with the broader scientific community for the environmental footprint of biobanking, how we can move into more sustainable practices. And how we do this really comes into um, 
a mix of things. So just doing one thing alone, what what we have found by experience is that it's not sufficient. So you cannot just say this is best practice, for example, because mm -hmm. uh, it's based on uh, research that shows that uh, environmentally this is better. Um, you, you have to facilitate this understanding of best practice in different settings. It might be best practice in a given setting, but not in every setting. And mm -hmm. usually best practices translate into standards. So we have the ISO standards, uh, ISO 20387 for biobanking. But again, if the standard is too prohibitive in, in allowing um, uh, the, the Oh, how to say? So, if the standard does not accommodate for changes in practice at regular intervals, and and most standards actually now do that, so that's not really dangerous. But then it, it's you get stuck. So you know you have to change something, but you can't because the standard is disallowing you to doing this. Uh, on the other hand, this is the push factor. So you have to change through the best practice through the the standards, there is the pull factor that we have to consider. So what are the incentives for, for doing this change? Because every time you change something in biobanking, your stakeholder downstream, the person who will receive the samples, wants to know if this change in practice has affected the quality of the material. For them, that's critical to know. So you need to be able to provide incentives, to provide funding for the biobank itself, but you need to provide also some funding to do the research in biobanking. So how does this change of practice uh, may have a downstream impact? What is that? Can it be measured? How does it get measured? So the, the biobanking science in itself needs to be funded to go with the change and provide the evidence that's required. Um, I think biobanks altogether have become better in the last 20 years to to talk to governments, to talk with scientific uh, communities about the needs of biobanking, about what is happening in biobanking. Um, far from perfect, let's uh, put it out there. So still, if you go out in the general population and you say, do you know what biobanking is? Most people will say, probably not. If you start describing the process of biobanking, a lot more will be aware that this is happening, but they didn't know that biobanking was the, the name, the official name for it. Um, but that is not the majority of people. So we still have quite a lot of on our plate in terms of awareness, in terms of advocacy. Um, and to be able to say, look, this is an activity that's really important. It is a foundation of scientific research, but at the same time, uh, we need to consider the environmental impact and how we do this is also important. Right. This is in a way it's encouraging to know that uh, the progress, although slow, is being made. But yes, mm -hmm. the larger picture needs to be taken into account and there's, there's a need for more advocacy, more discussions. Uh, now let's uh, shift our focus to high-income countries where there might be more resources. 
I think it would be interesting to explore the innovative technologies and practices high-income countries or biobanks in high-income countries are uh, using. Uh, Zizis, could you give us examples of uh, some technologies or uh, uh, perhaps policies or practices or equipment uh, that uh, biobanks in high-income countries are using to reduce their energy consumption? Yes. So um, the situation in high-income countries is slowly improving. Okay. And um, it's it's not a wide wide practice. So what you see at the moment are just isolated examples where people have tried this or that, and they tend to usually be associated with some local incentive or some government funding to to try this and see what happens. So yes, there is a movement, and they are in a better position because these incentives exist. Uh, but uh, we shouldn't consider this as um, we shouldn't we shouldn't consider this as a, uh, a general picture that takes place throughout biobanking in high-income countries. Now, for a couple of examples that you asked, um, so a number of biobanks, for example, as part of the overall hospital or university aim to reduce the carbon footprint have been furnished with equipment that measures the energy consumption of individual, uh, let's say, ultra-low freezer, uh, freezers or high-capacity freezers, so that you understand the fluctuation in energy consumption throughout the year, so that you understand the energy fluctuation in energy consumption depending on the level of usage of that particular equipment. So the more I open the freezer, for example, mm -hmm. the more likely it's to consume electricity because the compressors have to work harder and longer. Uh, but we we still do not have a complete picture in that sense. So people have done it for their own needs, for their own settings. And based on that, they have improved by buying, for example, alternate uh, freezers provided by alternative companies with a better footprint. Um, but this, this has been very isolated. The other technologies that we've seen are the automation in terms of uh, biobanking. You can have automation in freezer space. So, for example, we've had very large automated freezers developed, and they we talk about millions of samples. Uh, and they because of the concentration of the samples, they can provide uh, energy savings. So you have a lot of samples compressed into a smaller space. So that that is an economy of scale, and that gets reflected onto the environmental mm -hmm. footprint as well. Um, there are also the in increased use of electronic uh, or let's say IT driven solutions where you can predict when uh, equipment might fail so you can have a preemptive maintenance so we have seen that uh, occur in some biobanks where depending on the level of uh, say fluctuation of the temperature in some freezers you call the technician early enough because the compressor might be uh, struggling. So you see the signal, it's a preemptive maintenance. 
it allows you to keep that equipment for longer and working uh, predictably so your environmental footprint as well is affected but you see these are all solutions that come through the improvement of practice that and that improvement of practice reflects on the environmental footprint but they're not driven from the environmental side of things so um, yes there are improvements but they are peripheral to the core of, of the activity that's happening. Um, yeah, let's stop here. <laughs> we can mention more examples later. Sure, sure, sure. Azizus, thank you for giving us a glimpse into the advanced technologies or practices uh, shaping biobanking in higher income countries. Jesus, now as we delve deeper into the, uh, into the mechanics of decarbonization, one key aspect that uh, surfaces is the lack of comprehensive data about uh, the cost and consumption of liquid nitrogen or energy over the lifetime of uh, ultra low cost temperature freezers. Jesus, how important do you think gathering is uh, gathering this data is and uh, what obstacles do we face in gathering this data? Um, I think it's a rhetorical question as to how important it is. Okay, <laughs> okay. <it> important? <laughs> well, uh, given all the discussion we've had so far, I think you can say it is important. Yeah. But um, uh, no, the lack of data is, is severe. So we really do not understand how the same equipment, let's say an ultra-low freezer, but not just an ultra-low any freezer, let's say, how it performs... Okay. Uh, the same freezer, you know, you buy two identical ones. You put one in uh, a high-income country, you put the other one in a low-income country. So the one has a stable electricity, relatively stable conditions of humidity and uh, temperature gradients that are acceptable on the environment. The other uh, is found in uh, irregular electricity supply, very high humidity throughout the year, or dust throughout the year and very high temperatures or, or very highly varied temperatures. So how these two identical equipment will behave in these two very different contexts, we don't really know. Um, and I mean, this is, this is a severe lack of data. How can we inform our colleagues in low middle income countries on the best practice of particular equipment if we don't have the data. We simply would say the consensus we have from our experience in high-income countries is such. Uh, good luck for the local adoption. Um, the, the second is that actually a lot of the processes that we use and a lot of the biological materials that we use are very energy demanding in being constructed. So for example, we do, uh, we, we get materials, the tissues, blood, urine, we have to analyze, do some preliminary analysis before we store for long term. Even the enzymes that we need to use are very energy um, consuming in being created, in being provided, they're all provided in, um, dry ice uh, at uh, minus 40 degrees, they all provided, they all need to be kept at minus 20 degrees to remain active. So this, this whole process is energy uh, 
consuming. Um, so we need, again, there is not a lot of data. So we don't know if, if we replace the production of some uh, enzymes, let's say, with lower temperatures, is that going to be effective for what we need to store for the quality of the material? If, for example, we need to store DNA or RNA, are there new technologies that allow us to store it at room temperature? The answer is yes, there are new technologies. There are, for example, um, uh, tissue preservation media, uh, nucleic material preservation media, long-term uh, preservation media that, are, so this is like a liquid. That, that you can mix your sample in and it will preserve it very well for at least a number of weeks at room temperature. Eventually it would need to be stored at minus 40, minus 20 for the long term. So, so we, we still have uh, data that is missing. Yes, there are new technologies that are coming, but they need to be tested. Uh, and those that are tested need to be incentivized for the rest of the biobanking community to adopt. So there is a resource allocation question that comes as well. Um, now, it's easy from my side to say, oh, we need more data. That's probably the easiest thing to do. Uh, I have to mention that actually we also need standardized metrics. So there isn't uh, very much merit in, in just getting data if it's not standardized and comparable across the board. And I think this is something that there is still work to be done. The data collection and variability of data that we get from biobanks is troubling at the moment. So we know that biobanks can face difficulties to collect data accurately. And that is because of the different freezer models, the storage conditions, the environmental conditions, the operational practices, the, the list is long. The more data we collect, the better it becomes. So the, the picture starts to become more complete. Um, and to have some standardized data collection methodologies on that aspect really can help address this challenge. I think the roundtable discussions we're having with ISBA are very useful to create a consensus on how this data needs to be collected compared and presented. Thank you. Thank you, Zizis, for highlighting the importance of data as well as standardized methods uh, in our journey towards sustainability. Uh, now, talking about the practical implementation, Zizis, um, I was wondering if uh, you could share some uh, successful case studies, case studies where biobanking facilities have successfully deployed the decarbonization strategies or uh, case studies uh, where uh, innovative approaches have led to tangible reduction in environmental impact. Oh yes, I, I can uh, I can mention a couple at least. So, for example, the um, biobanking facilities in Kenya, a lot of them, they have developed uh, solar panel uh, energy. Uh, Old, an alternative energy source that's driven by solar panels. And that really reduces the carbon footprint. It's not reliable enough to provide electricity for everyday needs. 
But when the electricity goes down, then there is sufficient energy to cover most of the aspects. And yes, that has been an upfront investment, but the source of the electricity is uh, inexhaustible, uh, definitely in Eastern Africa. The, we've seen similar approaches borne by necessity in other parts of uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. A lot of the solar panel or environmentally friendly resources go into the energy mix that provides for the biobanks. Um, we've had a number of biobanks that work with DNA and RNA to try new technologies in terms of the storage. There are some new technologies that allow the isolated DNA and RNA, so you get the blood or the uh, tissue, and then you isolate the DNA RNA. This has to be kept uh, safe because it starts to degrade, it starts to break down very quickly after you isolate, which is absolutely understandable. This The simple biology is the moment you take something out of its environment, it starts to degrade. Um, and they create, in a sense, little capsules, or they lock it in airtight um, uh, wax or oil uh, container spaces. So, so there are some technologies that would allow you to maintain that level of integrity for the material uh, for at least a considerable amount of time at room temperature, what we call room temperature in, in low middle income settings, which of course it's a completely different temperature to high income uh -huh. settings. But um, we, we've had, yeah, th there are technologies that, that can um, transform biobanking and there are, they, they have been deployed. For example, let me give you another example. In Indonesia, we've had uh, post-pandemic a lot of reorganization of or rethinking of biobanking <clears throat> with a lot of support by the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Science and Technology. And the idea there is that you optimize the use of existing biobank facilities for the projects that take place. So you create a network of biobanks that was organically created by the colleagues in Indonesia. And therefore now you have, from a science and technology point of view, you have a network of facilities that you can engage for upcoming research. So you optimize the use of the resources, and therefore you optimize the use of, uh, you optimize your environmental footprint. Right. Fascinating insights and intriguing uh, use of technology there, Zizis. Now, uh, looking toward the future, Zizis, uh, technology is ever evolving. So uh, what, according to you, are some technologies that you think would uh, transform biobanking and its approach towards sustainability in the near future? Um, the, there are some technologies. Uh, you're absolutely correct. Technology is advancing all of the time. Um, in some cases, a bit of a headache in biobanking because <laughs> our outlook is long-term and then the technology comes very quickly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's better to have it that way than uh, any other way. Okay. So we we have um, 
vitrification techniques. So it involves the creation of the biological material into a glass-like state. So the water cools down and forms like a glass and uh, avoids the formation of ice crystals. Um, it, it has the potential to reduce the reliance on the energy-intensive ultra-low freezes. Um, there is the Society of Cryobiology that has provided a lot of the very solid scientific evidence for this. And uh, this is still a very active field of um, development. There are monitoring systems that uh, we, we even have here at IARC, real-time monitoring system for the temperature, the humidity, the energy consumption, not so much for a lot of our equipment. So when we see uh, indications that some equipment is struggling, that uh, the, the consumption is not as whether it is energy, liquid, nitrogen, any type of consumption is not as expected, then we can intervene early enough and avoid bigger problems. Um, we can consider friendly, environmentally friendly reagents. So, um, the reagents that are, for example, maybe biodegradable plastic. So, replace the plastics that are single use and we use very widely with uh, something that's biodegradable. I don't know if that is possible, because then if we have to store that biodegradable product for 20 years, will it behave the same as the plastic? That I don't know, but it has happened in other fields of everyday activity, where we replace plastic with biodegradable products in, uh, for example, um, the food production, some aspects of food production and food retail, so perhaps, why not? Um, and of course, there are advances in technical storage um, where, where you can increase the way that you store materials. So in the same area, you can store a lot more um, and then multiply that so you can get the economy of scale. Um, yeah, let's leave it here. Thank you, Zizis. Uh, looks like uh, it is an exciting time for the intersection of technology and sustainability. Zizis, uh, considering the advancements that we've discussed, would you recommend biobanks to deploy informatics tools to reduce their carbon footprint? Uh, absolutely. I would recommend them. I would recommend biobanks to deploy informatics tools full stop. Um, the <laughs> At the level of use that biobanking is going, where it's very high throughput use of material coming in, material being provided, you cannot cope without having informatics tools. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is, uh, you know, we, we can say, oh, we'll manage with Excel spreads. It's actually only for a period of time. At some point, you really need to do the jump. And actually, the earlier you do that, the better it is for the biobank. Uh, in the longer term. So, yes, absolutely, biobanks should have informatics tools. At the moment, I think we are underutilizing the information, the data that comes out of the informatics tool. We simply use it as a, 
as a as a tool to count the beans in beans out uh, situation and actually the data that we have is rich we have biobanks that have had informatics tools for 10 years for 15 years it's data that's good enough to start to be mined so to see what are the the patterns that we can see in terms of use which means can we predict the level of storage that we need ahead of time and be very economical with it um, can we optimize the the tracking of samples without the need to open multiple freezes so when when i need to retrieve samples the system gives me the samples in the order that has the least impact in terms of opening freezes and closing them. Um, because uh, what I've seen in most biobanks is just a leaf. You know. uh, there isn't um, a second thought about how to best utilize the information that you have. Um, the shift to the digital altogether, I think it's really useful for the environmental footprint. Uh, the, the less paper we have, the better it is. Uh, of course, we have to back up whatever we do on the digital space, but uh, that's that's the best practice. And the, the same way that we have best practices for the operations in the physical process of samples, we have to have best practice for the digital side of things. That goes without question. Um, for example, there are systems now that allow uh, the input of information through voice-driven uh, software. So you don't say if you go to um, a high, highly protective atmosphere in a lab, so category three to allow you to work, for example, with COVID or highly pathogenic material, you don't need to get pen and paper that's dedicated. You can have a voice activated software that allows you to record the information, input the information in the system in the same manner of precision, and the work is done. You, you, it's, it's, it's there, and uh, you can process it whichever way you like. So there are solutions, absolutely, and we can use them to reduce the footprint. Again, I think what happened is people have used such solutions because of the local necessity, but they, they've considered the data in the very narrow sense. So how much money have I saved by not having paper, but how does that saving translate into an environmental footprint reduction? They haven't done that next step in the equation. Um, so having the digital side allows us not just to have the data in a proper way but to then use data analytics tools and extract the underlying information from that and for biobanks i think that information really has the potential to identify opportunities for resource optimization and very targeted sustainability activities um and you know we say about digital um, not needing or replacing paper altogether in the same way uh, cloud-based solutions replace the need for having uh, you know the fixed 
IT infrastructures that also reduces energy consumption. So, so there are there are all these different layers that are driven by the software uh, implementation. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, Zizis, uh, for your insights uh, into the potential role of informatics tools in biobanking sustainability. Informatics tools, data analytics tools, and uh, the elimination of pen and paper from the biobanking scene altogether. Thanks for that. Uh, so, uh, Zizis, as we approach the final uh, stretch of our conversation today, uh, I'd like to turn our attention to practical guidance. Yes. Uh, Jesus, what advice would you give to uh, biobanks uh, embarking on a journey towards sustainability? What should be the first steps they can consider? You know, I would say uh, define your mission and vision. Really, as a biobank, as any activity, you know, the more biobanks mature and become independent infrastructures, they have to behave as such. They have to define their mission and vision. It's not good enough to say, oh, we're just a, a foundational infrastructure for the research at the university. But you have to say, we, we provide, for example, a tire. Uh, our mission and vision is cancer research for cancer prevention. So our activities in the biobank are driven through this mission and we have to align at every step of the way. So you, you start from the top and you say, you know, this is how we need to behave. Once you know your your basic, your broad lines of behavior, then you, you need to take um, an, an assessment. So you need to know how much equipment you need, how that equipment behaves, how much energy it consumes. <coughs> Apologies. So <clears throat> we can call it a carbon footprint assessment. I, I don't know what's the official name, but you need to assess if you implement what you are anticipating to implement, how costly that is in terms of the energy consumption. And once you know that, then it's easier to establish sustainability goals. So there is no point for, say, for example, if you're a biobank in a hospital and the hospital says, oh, we need to reduce our energy footprint by 10% in the next three years. Well, okay, fine, but what's my benchmark? What's my starting point? Um, you need to know that to then have the targeted intervention to allow you to align with uh, the goals and policies that are imposed. And I have no doubt that in the name of energy, uh, redu energy reduction, in the name of perhaps um, financial sustainability for bigger organizations such as ministries or uh, big hospitals, targets like this will be implemented and biobanks will have to face how to deal with these targets. So the earlier we can do an assessment, the better. And then, once you know where you need to target, start discussing with the stakeholders so that this culture of sustainability and why it's important and what are the long-term benefits can start to emerge. Um, you know, biobanking is a long-term endeavor and the benefits will also be in the long term. So you need to make sure that this is clear from the very beginning and engage with your stakeholders. Eventually, I think if you are within a, a learning environment, so an environment that allows for this feedback to come back and uh, 
plan again activities and improve activities. Uh, you test, you see how it improves, come back again and repeat the cycle. Um, eventually you, you would go in for an infrastructural review. So you would have done so many little point changes that you need to take a step back and say, oh, we've changed all the things, they all work. Um, actually, can we translate it into a more concrete infrastructure uh, that gives us a bigger picture? Um, I think this is uh, inevitable. And uh, for example, um, simple things, simple things. So uh, air conditioning units, you know, biobanks, uh, the equipment, behaves better at a stable temperature and humidity like it's just the, the nature of the, the the equipment that we have um, small small changes into the uh, way that air conditioning is placed in the way that it's operated whether you have a centralized system a local system in a big facility can make a big impact on your energy consumption and how the equipment behaves. So being able to implement energy efficiency measures in a way that makes sense for biobanks is very useful. Um, we've mentioned the transportation and logistics. I think that is always a case of being optimized. Uh, if biobanks are not show how to do this, then IRC has uh, created a number of papers, uh, we've provided information online for free to use as an initial uh, benchmark, but really biobanks should work on an iterative optimization of the sample transportation and logistics. It is our second biggest cost and that needs to be taken very seriously. Um, the first biggest cost, of course, is the staff. And we really need to invest in the staff training, staff education. Sustainable practices uh, come at a cost, yes, on the technical side, but the bigger cost is to train people to understand why, to behave in the ways that optimize not just the uh, use of equipment, but the entire process on the biobanking. Uh, Thank you, Zizis. Fantastic insights there and a wealth of advice for uh, biobanks venturing into sustainability. Uh, Zizis, uh, given the strides that we're making toward uh, decarbonization, I'm curious about your vision uh, for uh, the future landscape of biobanking. So, um, what does future landscape of biobanking look like in terms of uh, decarbonization goals? And how does it, uh, how might it impact uh, the healthcare scene and uh, the research scene on the global scale? The big dream, the big dream, let's say, would be for an energy efficient infrastructure. Okay. So we, we, at the moment we invest a lot, even in low middle income countries, there's a lot of investment post COVID to develop surveillance mechanisms for emerging outbreaks of infectious diseases, 
to develop connected systems. So what happens in one hospital, you can compare with another hospital and be able to extract some uh, uh, some conclusions um, regarding the efficiency. So these are big steps that are happening. They're happening as we speak. So I think if we can put the carbon footprint or the the consumption of energy into the mix of this energy efficient infrastructure, we would have already made a big stride forward. Eventually, uh, we need to have this data-driven sustainability. So we need to be able to have good quality data that will drive our, that will inform our decision making and drive the way forward. Um, we need to think, we need to come with some clever ways of using the data that we already have as biobanks towards that end. Um, I've, I've experienced good discussions. I haven't seen, uh, say, a, a concerted effort yet. Okay. Uh, I'm just hopefully at some point it will materialize. Hopefully, if we do these things, eventually we'll have a, a carbon-neutral biobank. Uh, there is, um, you know, there are examples in other industrial sectors where they, they, they offset the energy consumption. So the heat generated, for example, is recycled and used in other areas of the operations. I see no reason why after some careful planning that we can offset the energy generated by say 150 ultra low freezers into some other form of uh, or you know that energy can be recycled into some other function of the facility where these freezers are located um, so the technologies for doing that exist i'm not aware of any of those being applied in biobanks Okay. So, perhaps that's an opportunity for companies, maybe it's an opportunity for uh, institutions and facilities to consider that actually the saving is not by reducing the number of freezers, but the saving is by using the output of these freezers, which is a lot of thermal energy, into some other function. Um, the, we, we we really need to have the stakeholder support to do this. So the, it, there is no point to um, talk about something global in the scale of, you know, having a, a global initiative to reduce the, the carbon footprint of biobanking without taking the regulators on board, without understanding from their perspective that incentives need to be made that biobanks need to be made sustainable because at the moment a lot of biobanks are not. They depend on the continuous input, financial input of their hosting institutions. So there are opportunities, there are big challenges on the way, but the technology moving in a way that I believe will allow us to answer at least most of these challenges. Thanks, Jesus. And with that visionary outlook, we conclude our enlightening conversation on decarbonization in biobanking with Jesus. Thank you to you, Jesus, for your expertise and your insights. Thank you for sharing the insights with us. And uh, 
for our uh, listeners thank you so much for joining us today if you have any questions on the topic that we discussed today or if you are looking for a reliable limbs you can reach us at 1302789004470 or you can send us an email at support@cloudlimbs.com thank you jesus stay tuned for more captivating conversations bye for now thank you